How is everyone today? Good. Tired, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I completely uh, understand that right now. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And as I was thinking this morning, I was thinking this is actually my fourth time speaking to you guys on Labor Day. And uh, the first time I spoke to you on Labor Day, I wasn't even a member of the staff here at Soul Sanctuary. And I remember being actually really scared of you guys. And uh, I came up here afraid that morning. And I thought to myself, I was living in Saskatchewan at the time, um, in Winnipeg. How do I get the crowd's favor? So I started making fun of the Rough Riders for five minutes, I think, is what I did that morning. It was probably a good plan, right? So go Bombers today, right? Got a big game coming up. Hopefully it goes well. But honestly, it's great to be with you all today and uh, be able to share the life lesson this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've gone through our, uh, a series talking about the vision of Soul Sanctuary and the vision being no God, no freedom, know your purpose, and make a difference. And for this week, we are going to be jumping back into the book of Matthew as we're also making our way through that text. And that finds us today in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles or phones or, you know, it will be on the screen. Uh, Matthew 16 is where we're going to be. But if I could just pray this morning before we start, uh, just to kind of get us in the right mood here. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just thank you today that you love each person in this room. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, thank you for your patience. This has already been prayed, Lord. We're just so grateful for all that you do for us. I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, bless the teaching of the word today, Lord, that you would just shield us from what would be my opinion, Lord, and give us your truth today. And Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts, challenge us afresh in each unique way, Lord, would you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so today we're going to be talking about missing the point. Uh, we're getting to a, a portion of the scripture in the book of Matthew where we're going to see what I call missing the point. Have you ever missed the point of something before? Anyone? You, you've done a project or you've done a school assignment or you've done something and you were so proud of yourself and you were happy and then, then, then you went to go turn it in or, or, or you know, tell people about it and you realized that it wasn't even what you were supposed to be doing to begin with. Anyone ever been there before? Or is that just me? Um, I think we all miss the point from time to time. But just to illustrate what missing the point can look like, I'm going to tell a silly story that I found online this past week about a monkey playing checkers, okay? So stick with me on this, okay? So there was this guy sitting in a park, uh, a, 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 a kind of a quiet park, and he was sitting at a picnic table playing checkers with a monkey, and uh, which is kind of cool. Would, would you agree? Kind of, kind of, be kind of a cool sight to see. And uh, to start off, it was just the two of them. They were sitting there playing checkers. All of a sudden, as people walked by, they took notice, and they were kind of amazed by this. They were surprised by what was happening, and they started gathering around them and watching their games. And before you knew it, there was a huge crowd attracted um, to their table, and they're sitting there playing checkers, uh, kind of going back and forth. And there was a buzz in the air, and most of the conversation in that group centered around the fact that there was a monkey at the table who could play checkers. Well, finally, uh, the man sitting there playing was getting annoyed by this. Like, why are they focusing on him? What's going on here? And with a tone of exasperation, he looks at the crowd and says, I don't know why you think he's so great. You know, I'm up seven games to one right now, right? And it's just the idea of missing the point, right? In case you missed it, a monkey playing checkers would be awesome to see, right? Um, missing the point, we do it all the time. Uh, anyone ever watched the, the show The Office, the U.S. edition with Steve Carell, right? You, you could, exactly, you could turn on any episode. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I could say this, and you will find examples all over of missing the point, all right? 
uh, especially from the boss. And so this morning we're going to talk about what it is to miss the point, but also what is it to find what we're looking for. And so Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12, let's get into it. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. And when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood. Sorry. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the, for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And so up until this point, Jesus had been doing all sorts of miracles, okay? He'd walked on water. He'd uh, fed 5,000 people. And just before this, he'd fed 4,000 people in just a miraculous, miraculous way. And he, he, he demonstrated his compassion among the people in the crowd when he did it. Uh, before that, he commended the faith of a Canaanite woman, and we looked at that a few weeks back. Um, and, and, and Jesus was always, uh, o o always looking for the needs of people, always looking out for people. But now the Pharisees... And the Sadducees got together, and I'll tell you more about this in a second. But they're demanding a sign from Jesus. And this isn't necessarily just a healing or a miracle, because, you know, we've already had a lot of that happening in the previous chapters. But they want a visible sign that is either visible or audible proof of God's blessing upon Jesus. Such as something like manna in the desert, or maybe they want to hear a voice from heaven, or maybe they want to see fire from heaven. They are asking Jesus for a sign to prove he is who he says he is. And that's what's happening as we take this up. And Jesus responds to them with, with a little bit of frustration. And he says, you know, an adulterous generation asks for a sign, but the only sign we will see will be the sign of Jonah. And in Matthew chapter 12, we read more about that. But the sign of Jonah could be one of two things. Commentators argue about this. Some say it's just the fact that Jonah was a prophet and Jesus is now a prophet. I don't know if I necessarily land there. I agree with most of the other commentators who say the sign of Jonah is being in the belly of a fish for three days, right? And then being coming out. And so the sign of Jonah for Jesus would be the, the, the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection that happened three days later. And so there would be no calling down signs from heaven in Jesus' books in order to impress people. Such signs actually degrade the work of God. And they fly in the face of all that God has taught Jesus in his temptations. When Jesus was tempted in the desert. When he said that God does not want his son just to be a showman for people. The miracles and acts of God weren't on display to appease people or to self-advertise. But they were for needy people, not for demanding skeptics. 
the miracles were for people who were in need and not for people who were just skeptical and needed to be proven something. But I think what's more interesting in the beginning part of the script, passage of Scripture is that Jesus is being tested by the religious teachers of his day. And he's being tested here by two groups who have come together, even though these two groups didn't see eye to eye. They didn't agree on their interpretation of the law. In fact, they didn't really even like each other all that much. Uh, they were constantly at conflict. They, 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 they kind of just sort of tolerated one another. But now they're coming together in an attempt to test Jesus and to see what he's going to say. You see, it's amazing what a common enemy can do for two groups of people who don't even like one another. Have you ever seen that before? It's like in the superhero movies when, you know, the, the two people fighting each other come together to fight an even bigger force, right? Uh, because something else has come upon them that they're recognizing they're going to need each other's help to or in order to protect themselves. You know, and this is what's happening here. These two groups don't like each other, but they're coming together, and uh, they're recognizing that Jesus is starting to, if I could say it like this, cramp their style here. He's starting to kind of say things that aren't in alignment with what they've said to people. And so in Jesus' earthly ministry, we learn quickly that he came to bring a message that was unlike the messages or wishes of the people in his day. That shouldn't surprise any of us. The message that Jesus came to bring never came without opposition. There was always opposition to the message of Jesus. I'd argue we would find that even today. Opposition is par for the course. Anyone who wants to step into the world and shake up the status quo should immediately expect people to oppose them. Agreed? Right? You think about anyone who made a dent, uh, just a couple examples, whether it be Jesus, whether it be Martin Luther King Jr., whether it be Gandhi as some examples, there was always opposition that was to be expected. And so this shouldn't be surprising. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, you can't go against against the grain of the universe and not expect to get splinters. Opposition is something that if you're going to step out, if you're going to go against the status quo, if you're going to go against what people have thought was normal all along and speak against it, you should expect that people are going to oppose you. <laughs> you should expect that people are going to come against you. But what's surprising in this passage of scripture is where the opposition came from. And it's from these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who don't even necessarily like each other. They don't agree on the interpretation of the law, and yet they're coming together to try to trap Jesus because his message is starting to offend him. You see, these two groups weren't on the same page about things, but they seem to have found common ground in their opposition of Jesus. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why would they all of a sudden find common ground? Why, why were they so against the message of Jesus. Well, the major thing, besides a couple of theological points on why these two groups disagreed from each other, was that they had different methodologies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? They, they had different methods of doing things. And you've got to remember, at this point in the scriptures, Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire, and many people are upset by this because it's very uh, di dictating, it, it, it's harsh conditions for people, and so the Pharisees are the first group, and they were having none of it, and they wanted Rome out of there, uh, like yesterday. They, they were the, the purists. They were trying to get Israel back to adhere to the law of God. And their thought was that, is that if we can get everyone to come back to the law, back to this strict moral code, then maybe we can conjure up some of God's favor again. And then maybe he will send a militaristic Messiah, and maybe he'll lead a revolt on our behalf. And so the Pharisees... Their methods of getting people to come back to God was to become very legal about everything, very rigid. 
and, and not only get people to follow the law, but they also added a whole bunch of traditions on their own on top of the law that they expected people to follow. The other group was the Sadducees, on the other hand, and they were the pragmatists. They were not like the Pharisees, but they were saying, okay, let's try to make some lemonade out of lemons here, okay? That was kind of more their philosophy when it came to the Roman Empire being in charge. Let's make the best out of a bad situation. And so the Sadducees actually found themselves working with Rome at the time. And they had a lot of the official power because of this, and they wanted power desired that power. They desired to have these places of influence. And not only were they working with Rome, but they had a tendency because of that to let things slide here and there in order to appease or please the Romans who were in charge. They would let things slide from time to time so that they could retain some places of power. And they buddied up with the state even at the expense of the law of God. Are you with me? So you got one group, the Pharisees, really rigid, really legal, very legalist. you got the other group, the Sadducees, who definitely have a respect for the law, but they're a little bit more lax about it, right? A little bit more free, as they would probably would have called themselves. Both different groups, and yet the rigidness of the Pharisees and the pragmatism of the Sadducees both lead them into direct opposition of Jesus. And in some ways, we kind of got to sit back and recognize, and we even feel a little bit um, upset for them, a little bit sad for them in a way, because they thought what they were doing was right. They really thought that what they were doing was God's work. You see, um, in a way, these guys saw themselves as the good guys in the whole thing. They were trying to bring the people of God back, you know, a bite in their own ways. But still, they were trying to bring the people of God back. And they expected that when the Messiah showed up, that he would work within the structures that they themselves had set up. And definitely not against it. And that isn't happening. And they're wondering, why is Jesus opposing our system? Why is Jesus opposing the way in which we do things? You see, the Pharisee and the Sadducees found common ground in opposing Jesus because they saw themselves as the insiders. They saw themselves as the, on the inner circle of God's work. They were on God's side, and they were leading his work for the people around them. And so naturally, they thought the Messiah would be not be against them, not be opposing their work, but he'd be you know, favoring it and pushing it forward when he came. And yet Jesus cautions his disciples to watch out for the yeast, as he calls it, of both groups. Watch out for their attitudes, he would later say. Do not do what they do and miss the point of what God wants to do in the world. And so naturally, our next question is, as we ask ourselves, how did they miss it? Well, based on their actions and based on the demands of the people, let's look at some of the ways Scripture uh, seems to go against what they were doing and what they were teaching. And so here's a few practical ways in which they missed the message of God. Number one was they had this failure to recognize their own sin. It's this idea of failure to recognize our own sin. Even today, sometimes the primary opposition to what God wants to do in our lives today is us, isn't it? Sometimes we're the primary opposition sometimes of what God wants to do in our lives because we can see ourselves as insiders sometimes as well. It's often said that it's easier to judge others by their actions, but it's easy for, to judge ourselves by our intentions or what we meant to do or what we wanted to do. And so the Pharisees were this group of people who puffed themselves up in an attempt to show how much better they were than people around them. And one of the great oppositions to, live, to our living like Christ in our lives is ego. 
in this case, the opposition of ego, our religious ego, if I could say it like that. And remember, when I use the word religion, I'm defining it as anything that gets us to God based on our actions, based on something that gets us there other than him coming to us. I'm not using it in the traditional sense of religion. Religion's a good word in, in and of itself. We're all religious if we're people of faith. But I'm using it in the sense of legalism here today. And so it's this religious ego of seeing ourselves here and seeing other people here. This was the problem of the Pharisee. You see, religious egos lead people, led to people who couldn't care less about who Jesus cared about the most. The Pharisees had, did not care for anyone who was outside of their sect. Religious egos lead us to crave the applause and praise of man before God. Religious egos make us feel like we do more than enough while others are doing nothing. What, religion, what, what religious ego does is it causes us to forget the one primary thing that separates the gospel from all other world religions. And that one thing, it gets in the way of us remembering that God's love is expressed to us through his grace. Amen? God's love is expressed through grace. You see, the whole point is grace. Jesus came for us because we are failures. Sorry for saying that so harsh this morning. But he came for us because there is none who are righteous, not one. Because without him, we are left without any hope. And sometimes this religious ego causes us to forget this. And we begin to believe that we're up here and other people are down here. And we're the good people and they're the bad people. You know, James 4, 6 says it like this. It says that but he, God gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You see, the cure sometimes to having a religious ego is to look at Jesus in the gospel, isn't it? And to see his example and see how he treated people, see how he loved people. When do we see the best version of ourselves that we could ever be? I think it's when we see Jesus' love and the ultimate picture of who we want to be. We see it, and, and the problem is that sometimes we see a massive gap between where he is and where we are presently. And when we see that gap, we're driven to God's grace and we're humbled before him. And we recognize that we don't have it all together. We, we recognize that we are sinful people and we recognize that we don't always get it right. You see, failure to see our own sin will only cause problems for us. And in light of who Jesus is, we're left recognizing our sin and we know that we've missed the mark. And that we are in need of forgiveness. And so you see the yeast and the attitudes of the Pharisees. They lived as though they were good and that others needed forgiveness. But in Christ and in light of all he is. We, we quickly recognize that we are needy people as well. Martin Luther and some of the last words he ever wrote. He said that in light of Christ. In light of Christ's grace and his love. We are all beggars. It's true. All in need. Every one of us has fallen short. This is one of the starting points to the gospel. Not that we are good, but that he alone is. And so we need to destroy, I think sometimes, these religious egos that we are tempted to have. Because at the end of the day, you and I need as much grace as anyone around us does, don't we? And the Pharisees never understood that. And the Pharisees failed to see their sin, but they definitely were quick to point out the sin in others. Uh, number two, another thing that we learn about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the gap between what we say and how we live. And this is otherwise known as hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, uh, verses 25 and 26, we read it like this. Jesus said to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Craig Groeschel says it like this. He says that hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we do and what we wish we did. Hypocrisy is the gap between what we show people and who we are. <laughs> Hypocrisy isn't just what we think, but it's the way we say things. It's, it's how we live according to what we say. And when those two things aren't in alignment, even in the least, it becomes so obvious to people around us that we say one thing, but we do the exact opposite or we do something different altogether. And hypocrisy is big with keeping up appearances at, at all costs, and yet it misses the life-changing work that Jesus desires to do in our hearts. In Proverbs 4, we read this, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You see, the law wasn't, was concerned about outward appearance. It was, it, it, it was focused externally, but Jesus wouldn't settle for that alone. He wanted to change us inwardly. And so he says to the Pharisees, you guys are really good at cleaning the outside. You guys are really good at presenting a good face to the rest of the world. And yet the inside, your hearts aren't anywhere near where they need to be. And I believe those words challenge us today, this morning. I believe those words speak to me this morning. How, how do I sometimes try to clean up outwardly and, and, and yet neglect what's happening internally? You see, the law was concerned about outward appearances, and Jesus was concerned about our hearts, and the, he said that life flows from our hearts. And I didn't make this up, but Jesus says in the book of Luke, he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so the Pharisees were content to to, to, to live in this hypocrisy. And Jesus called them out for it and said, it's not enough just to clean up the outside, but you have to do something inwardly as well. You see, hypocrisy is okay with saying the right things or appearing good while living and being the exact opposite on the inside. And I think this goes deeper than we think. Have we perhaps, even sometimes in churches, bought into this mindset ourselves that we just need to look good? We need to appear like we have things together and go through the motions rather than allowing Jesus to really and truly change our hearts. Do we allow ourselves to be real with one another? Have you ever asked someone how their day was and they were honest with you and didn't just give you the, oh, yeah, things are great. It's great. It's great. They've been awesome. Do we set up these kinds of environments for this to be possible? You see, Andy Stanley in talking about why we are so outward-focused rather than inward-focused, he says this about the heart. He says, perhaps the major reason we rarely stop to monitor our hearts is that it was never encouraged. In other words, we were just taught to behave. If we behaved properly, good things happened, regardless of what was happening in our hearts. If we misbehaved, well, then not so good things got, would happen, right? And it got his attention early in life. He says, I modified my behavior just to avoid pain, and I've been doing it ever since. And I bet you have too. Perhaps even as young kids, we were taught this in a sense, that you know we, we, we do things because we want to avoid uh, certain types of outcomes. But at the end of the day, Jesus wants us to go deeper than that. And he wanted the Pharisees to go deeper than that. And it wasn't just about appearing good out here, but he definitely wanted to do something on the inside of our lives 
on the inside of our hearts. And we live in a society that values appearances, don't we? We look, we, we look on the outside, and yet God looks within. And the yeast of the Pharisees was a hypocrisy that was content to only clean up the outside and completely neglect what was happening inwardly. And it became legalism, and it brought no freedom for them. And Jesus says to be on guard of ever living like that. A third way that the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees gets us is it, it sometimes tempts us to be judgmental. This temptation to be judgmental towards other people. In the book of Luke, we see a story about two guys praying. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And so the Pharisee is just proud. He's in the place of prayer and he's looking at this poor tax collector next to him. And he's saying, God, thank you I'm not like him. Thank you that I don't do this stuff. Thank you that this isn't me. Thank you that, you know, I do right and I follow you essentially. And the other side of this story, if you keep reading, is the tax collector doesn't even look up to heaven. He, 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 the story says he can't, but he, he simply beats his, his hand against his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. And that's the attitude that Jesus commends in the story. You see, the Pharisee's life is shown through his words here. His heart is revealed by how he treats the tax collector who is praying next to him. You see, uh, maybe I could just say it like this. When we are full of ourselves, there is no room for God in our lives. And there's very little room for compassion for other people. When we're full of ourselves, we kind of, you know, suck out the room for God. And sometimes with these kind of legalistic mindsets, we try to prop ourselves up and we like to point to the flaws and the sins of the people around us. And it's sometimes like we're almost looking to find justification for how good we are when we put spotlights on how bad people around us are. Ever notice that when, you know, a great athlete or a politician or a well-liked celebrity kind of has like a moral fallout? You see the media, you see the crowds, and even other peers of theirs start taking shots at them and start pointing out what they did and start making comments about them. And we get sound clips everywhere. And in our world of social media, this just goes around so fast right now. And putting the attention on them. And it makes me wonder sometimes if we do this because in some ways we justify ourselves by doing it. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. If people see all the bad things that those people have done, then perhaps that distraction and attention keeps the focus off of our own shortcomings and off of our own mistakes. And that seems to be the mindset of what the Pharisees are going with, especially this Pharisee in the place of prayer here. Maybe in some ways we feel slightly better because at least we're not as bad as them. And so we point. We thank God that we're not like those guys. Thank God I'm not like them. Sound familiar from the scripture I just read? You see, this is the yeast of the Pharisees. This is the mindset that Jesus came to break down and tear down among the people. Because when we are full of ourselves, there is no room for God. But when we empty ourselves, we are in, perfect, we are in the perfect position to receive 
and be filled with God's grace. When we empty ourselves and when we recognize our own brokenness, we are then in the perfect position to be used by God as people who can go around distributing grace. You see, pride is always about my glory, but humility is always about the glory of God. And the gospel isn't that God is looking for people who have it all together, but he's looking for people who are honest and recognize their brokenness. And he desires to fix it. And that's what he came to do. He didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. You know, even King David in his sin recognized that a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God would never deny such a thing. You see, the yeast of the Pharisees was to look at the sins of others, look down on others, all the while forgetting the ways in which they also sinned. <laughs> but Jesus says, admitting that you are also the problem is the first step to kingdom living. And it's not about our good deeds and lining them up next to someone else's faults. You see, religion thinks that way. Religion is about doing, but grace is about what's already been done, right? The law is full of demands, but grace is endless in supply for us today. And I believe in my heart that there's a Pharisee in all of us. I know that there is in me at times. Because I recognize it, friends, when I'm tempted to think that I'm better than someone or I'm tempted to compare my sin to someone else's sin. Or when I think, you know, my morality somehow impresses God more than someone else's. Or when I think my struggles aren't that bad or dirty as someone else's struggles are in God's eyes. I think that sometimes there's a Pharisee in all of us that we have to watch out for. We have to be in, on guard against that, as Jesus said. Because we live in a culture of appearances. And our culture doesn't exactly push us to honesty and brokenness <laughs> that Jesus and the scriptures talk about and command. When we miss the message of God, we become blinded by our own good works. We become blinded by legalism. We become blinded by self-effort. When I think I am different and better than the tax collector praying next to me, I have missed the Jesus message. I've missed it. I've missed it completely. When I see myself as here and other people as here because of obvious things that are in their lives, I have missed the message of Christ. You see, the message that Jesus brings is that we were all born sick and that we all needed the cure that's found in him and that he has come to heal us. Amen? And it's a beautiful thing. Finally, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this one's pointed more at the Sadducees, is this tendency sometimes to water down the things of our faith. So if legalism's over here, then this is the opposite problem. It's when we start letting things slide, right? We start letting things slide in, in, in order to appease people, to please people, to fit in with people. We, we, our convictions over here maybe are a little too misguided, but over here, we're not necessarily standing on them at all. Do you guys get what I'm saying here between the difference between here and here, like Pharisee, Sadducee? This is what was happening in these days. And the religious and legalist mindset always tends to always be looking for outward signs that we're qualified to follow God. But Jesus shatters that mindset, and he shifts the paradigm, and he doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he loves us. But rather, he finds us where we are, and he invites us right there in that situation to follow him. And he desires to change us from the inside looking out. But there's this other side. On one hand, we can dive into legalism, and we can miss grace and freedom. But on the other side of grace and freedom is the abuse of grace and the cheapening of grace and freedom. See, there's two, two ways we can go about this. We can become very legalist, and we can become to the point where we don't even stand on anything anymore. 
And that becomes the time where we water down the message in order to please the culture around us. And we need to be on guard for that kind of yeast too, I believe is what Jesus is, is communicating in this passage. And this is where the Sadducees missed the point. You see, the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the Roman Empire their day. Wanted nothing to do with them. If anything, they couldn't wait until their militaristic Messiah was going to come and topple them, overthrowing them out of power. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were excited for. But the Sadducees kind of took a different route, and they tried to buddy up to Rome. <laughs> and they wanted the influence. They wanted the places of power that came with being associated with Rome. And so they got close to the regime, and to the point where they would let things slide here and there, things that the law spoke against, in order to keep this relationship and gain approval from the government of its day. And the slippery slope begins when you start doing that, as many people call it. See, this is the yeast of the Sadducees. You start going down this road, and before you know it, your loyalties are divided, and you're starting to turn away from right things in order to please people. And of course, this drove the Pharisees nuts. This is why they couldn't get along. Pharisees would have thought, you guys have completely missed it. And when I was reading through this this past week, the, the verse came to me from 1 John 2, 5, 17, 15, 17, where it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's a tough verse. It's tough to interpret. Does that mean we can't love people? Of course we can love people. We're supposed to love people, right? But we can't love other things at the expense of loving him more. You see, there's this opposite danger of being too legal. And, and the opposite danger of being too legal is being too flippant about things. And in our case today, if we were to think about it in our current terms, it would almost be a case of abusing the grace and freedom that each of us have. You see, I grew up personally with a very law and legalist mentality when I thought about faith in God. Growing up, I thought that I at least better do enough to at least please God so he's not upset with me. And I could never understand grace. I, never, I had a tough time accepting it until my second year of Bible college. Yes, I went through a whole year even of Bible college not being able to understand God's grace and his love for me. Because I was, in my mind, I thought, you know, I got to please God. I got to do stuff. I got to work my way to him. I was a little Pharisee in my mind at the time. And it creeps in sometimes still. <laughs> I don't know if any of you could relate with that. And I remember sharing it with people in my dorm room in college and telling them, like, you know, this is my struggle. After reading Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, it became apparent that I was on the wrong track. And I shared it with people in my dorm room. And I was surprised at what they said to me because some of my friends said to me that they actually had the opposite problem. That for them, it was the opposite problem. You know, I was struggling with accepting grace only to realize that maybe they struggled with cheapening it and maybe stretching their freedom. And maybe taking grace for granted. And cheapening it, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say in The Cost of Discipleship. You see, we run the risk on both sides of this, don't we? We could be too legal or we could be too flippant about things. But in the end, I don't think we need more rules. <laughs> I don't think, you know, we don't need more leniency. What I believe we need more of is Jesus and a, and a, and a relationship with him. And walking with him. And, and living with him. You see, that relationship isn't motivated by law or, but what, or by what we can get away with. But a healthy relationship where we embrace God's love for us and our love for him 
and, and because of that, we seek to please him and we live in that. We don't, we, don't, we don't live with, you know, what do I have to do? Or we don't live with what can I get away with? We live with how can we please him because we love him and he loves us. And I believe in a lot of ways, this is the answer for us this morning to guarding against the yeast of the Pharisees is to embrace Jesus and to follow him and to live in relationship with him. You see, in Matthew 16, 7, in that same passage, they were getting upset with themselves, saying it's because we have no bread. Jesus was warning them against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they concluded, oh, it's because we didn't bring any bread. That's why he's talking about this. And it's kind of amazing that they even go there, because this is coming right after two miraculous feedings, right? 5,000 people fed, right, from a few loaves and fish. And 4,000 people fed. And the disciples are still worrying about bread. And they're still worrying about what they'll eat. And Jesus interjects and kind of rebukes them here for missing the point of it all. That this was never about actual bread. Rather, this was about God's desire to extend to the whole world the true bread of life being him. You see, this is, this is about getting everything out of the way that opposes the work of salvation that Jesus wants to do. Every way of viewing yourself and the world and God is about getting rid of all that that gets in the way of that in order that you can know Jesus and love him. And we see something about the human condition and how even as disciples of Christ, there's often a temptation to look at what we have or what we don't have. Anyone ever been there? God asked you to do something. Well, I don't have that. Or I don't have this. I, 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 can't, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I don't have it. There's a temptation sometimes, I think, for us to look at what we, what we have and what we don't have rather than looking at who we have on our side and who's living in us, and that being Jesus. You see, it's not our insufficiency that's a problem. It's our unbelief and the sufficiency, sufficiency of Jesus that I think becomes problematic for us at times. It's that we focus on ourselves, and we focus on doing, and we focus on what we can accomplish, and in that way we become Pharisees and Sadducees, sometimes on either side. But our focus needs to be on Christ. Because then we are always looking at what, we, what, what he can do, right? We, we, we look at his power working in us. And not just put the focus at ourselves. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is all that we need. And he's more than enough. And we best watch out for any teaching that leads us astray from that path. That says you have to add to this. Or you have to subtract from this. But what we need to do is look to Jesus and embrace his love and relationship and extend that love to the people around us. You see, Jesus says, watch out for those who make this more difficult than it has to be. Watch out for those who miss the point of all this. Watch out for those who water down the message and use grace as a, as a license to justify their sin. But he would call each one of us to look to him and to embrace his love. And this relationship is offered to each one of us. It's not about whether we brought bread or not. It's the fact that we brought Jesus and that Jesus is with you. And in that, we find truth, love, and what we most need. And so the fact that he uses the image of yeast, let me end with a few dangers that are present in the teachings and actions of the Pharisees and Sadducees for us. And I'm going to go through these really fast. But these things can keep us from understanding and knowing salvation. Right? They can keep us from understanding and knowing salvation. You see, if we were to follow the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it can cause us to misunderstand what God is saying to us. And at worst, it can keep us from ever knowing and appreciate the great salvation that's available in Christ. 
And if we're too committed to that misunderstanding, it can cause us to lead other people astray. And this is what Jesus was getting frustrated about with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, legalism and religious ego are always in direct opposition to grace, as is watering down the message. And so they keep us from knowing the salvation that's available in Christ. These teachings, secondly, are dangerous because they keep us from experiencing freedom from sin. They keep us from experiencing freedom from sin. It all of a sudden becomes all about what we can do or, or, or how we can get through this. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to them, you're boasting in yourselves isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so Jesus wants us to know him, wants us to know his truth, and wants us to experience freedom from sin. And the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees can keep us from experiencing that. You know, some of us are burdened with guilt and sin, and we lived weighed down by it, but in Christ, we're free from it. And you need to hear this morning that his sacrifice was a one-time thing and a final sacrifice for your forgiveness. And though we still wrestle with sin, we still struggle with it, we need not let it define us anymore because we're in Christ, and because of that, our guilt is taken away. And finally, even a little bit of yeast will permeate our entire lives. I'll say it like this. If you oppose Jesus in a single area of your life, you will quench the spirit in other areas of your life. Even just a little bit of that yeast can work its way throughout your life. You see, in Mark chapter 8, the book of Matthew doesn't say this, but when they asked him about this, it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Almost like a, hmm. You see, this religious opposition is is the story of the Bible over and over again. And you and I are no exception to it. Jesus wants this freedom for you and me, often more than what we wanted ourselves. And his sigh speaks to a deep love that's being spurned over and over again, and just his heart for people, that we wouldn't fall into this stuff, but that we would just accept him and his love for us. You know, we've seen that the freedom that God wants for us is not just for those who haven't yet come to know Jesus, but it's for us who do know him as well. Because we can make ourselves bound. We can take away from what he wants to do. There is more for us to have, and God wants us to know the freedom and fullness of his love and ways every single day. And to do this, we need to lay down our legalistic ego. We need to lay down our self-sufficiency, our fixation on outward appearances. We need to quit watering down the scripture, but we need to come to Jesus and embrace all he is for us today. And so let me ask you some questions as we come to an end today. In what ways have we maybe given, in, given into a faith that has become more of a checklist than a relationship? I think for some of us this morning, that's a question we have to wrestle with. We have to ask ourselves, in what way have we turned this relationship with Jesus more into a checklist of things that we have to do less than living in relationship with him? Second question I'll ask is, is in what ways have we maybe cared too much about how people around us see us? rather than about how God sees the condition of our hearts? In what ways have we focused more attention on how people perceive us, rather than how he perceives us? Do we take time to slow down and have a heart check with him? Do we allow Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to reveal things to our hearts, to put the spotlight on our lives and show us things 
where maybe we're not where we need to be. And thirdly, here's a third question I'll ask. In what ways have you maybe tried to water down or soften or even clean up the message, Jesus? In order to justify things that you know can't be justified. These are all questions that we wrestle with, friends. Like it or not, we all have a little Pharisee (laughs) sometimes and a little Sadducee in us. But what makes the difference in that is knowing Jesus. What makes the difference is Jesus and, you know, being on guard for anything that tries to get past that. We need to put our faith in him and in him alone. Galatians 2.20 says it like this. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's no longer about what we can do. It's no longer about what we can bring in the table. We've been crucified with him. We no longer live, but he lives in us. And so the life we live, we live by faith in him. And it doesn't turn into this legalistic rat race. And it doesn't turn into this watering down of of, of truths of scripture. But it turns into this relationship and this dependence and this walking with him and this living with him. Recognizing that our walk with God simply isn't a contract, it keeps us from turning it all into legalism. It keeps us from watering it down and seeing how we can benefit, you know, from, you know, all sorts of parts of life. But looking to Jesus keeps us from seeing what we don't have and what we lack. But it helps us see what we have. Amen? And so we look to him today. And so I'm going to leave that with you this morning. Each one of us has a little Pharisee sometimes. Each one of us has a little Sadducee. But Jesus says, be on guard against the yeast. And so how has that maybe affected you today? I'll leave that with you today. I invite you to pray for that today. I invite you just to spend some time this long weekend just going to God and asking him to reveal your heart and just to speak to you. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, I just thank you this morning that you love us and that you care for each one of us. And I pray, Lord, that we would accept no substitutes in our lives, but that we would look to you and you alone, God. And that you would guide us, you would lead us, you would um, direct us, Lord God, into perfect freedom. Lord, into knowing you, God, into purpose, Lord, and just being able to live with you and making a difference in this world. I pray, God, that you would just guide our hearts today. Speak to us where we need Lord, rebuke us where we need it, Lord God, but also correct us, love us, and train us, Lord God, to be more like you. I pray for each person in here today, Lord, that they'd have a great weekend. We just thank you for your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So God bless you. I'm going to get everyone to stand up, and I'm just going to end with a blessing today. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so here it is, Soul Sanctuary. The love of the Lord Jesus draw you to himself. The power of the Lord Jesus strengthen you as you serve him. The joy of the Lord Jesus fill your hearts. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great week.